and going through 1 Corinthians, we have a couple of different thoughts. Paul has been talking at the beginning of 1 Corinthians to a church in turmoil, a church that was deeply divided, a church that people were constantly picking sides. People were saying, well, I am a Paul follower. I like Peter, or I like Apollos. And some said, well, I only like Jesus. And so they were torn and they were divided. And it became less about how to be right and what it was to be right and more about being on the right side, about allying with the right purpose, about their traditions and their preferences. This was, of course, lethal to a church. And so Paul writes to them and says, let me explain to you what your problem is. That's what he's been talking about since the end of the first chapter. And his, problem, his explanation of their problem is not very nice. It's not something that you would like to be said about you. Paul says, the problem that you all have in Corinth, the reason you're acting the way that you're acting, is that you're fools. The problem is you just don't understand how the world works. You just don't understand how to do the right things to get the right result. You are caught up in childish, worldly wisdom, and you are copying them and trying to do things in the world's way and missing the way that God does things. So we saw last week in uh, verses uh, 1 through 5, Paul was talking about how when he came and he preached to them, he didn't preach to them with slick wisdom. He didn't preach them with a powerful presentation. We read that Paul was actually a lousy public speaker. Paul was a poor preacher. You may, may not have known that if you haven't read in uh, 2 Corinthians, where they say that in his present, in his letters, Paul's tough. But in person, he's weak and unimpressive, and his speech is detestable. Paul was a lousy preacher. And Paul says, it's a good thing for you that I'm a lousy preacher. Because if I were a good speaker then your faith would be built on me instead of on the word. And so Paul's built this up, and he says, they don't understand, the Corinthians don't understand, the basic way that the world works. But today, he is going to teach them how to be wise. Let me read to you verse 6 through through 16. Paul says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen or ever heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, things that God hath prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak. Not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. 
yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the fact that we are not dependent on our own wisdom. We're not dependent on our own strength. We're not dependent on any of these things, Father, that get other people caught up. We're not dependent on our flesh. We're not dependent on the principles of the world of being stronger, faster, better. But instead, by your spirit, we're taught true wisdom. I just ask, Father, today that as we read your word, you would make it crystal clear for us how we can truly be wise, how we can truly know how to live, that we can walk circumspectly in the world, that we can make a difference for your kingdom's sake. I ask this thing in Jesus' name. We understand that first, Paul's answering a little objection. He says, we do speak wisdom. He's not saying that he goes and he just says things that don't make any sense put together. He says, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. That word perfect, you ought to know, in the King James Version is translated mature or complete in uh, modern translations. That's really what perfect means. Perfect means all the pieces are there. There's nothing missing. So he says, to those who are mature, those who are grown up, we speak wisdom. Now that ought to make the Corinthians a little upset. Because Paul's saying, when I went to you, you people who are patting yourself on the backs about how wise you are, who are talking about how you're on the right side in this debate or that debate, he says, when I went to you, I didn't use any wisdom at all. He says, but when I'm talking to grown-ups, I use wisdom. Yeah, I might, might just step on their coat a little bit. You know, said, he said, the, uh, he said, Corinthians, you think that I didn't use these sophisticated arguments, that I didn't get into the deep things of the Bible because I didn't know them. He said, I didn't get, the real reason that I didn't get into these deep things is that you were nowhere near being able to comprehend them. There's a universal principle in the Bible. Jesus says, whoever loses his life will find it. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. The harder you try to be wise, the harder you try to accomplish things for God in your own strength, the harder you try to understand by your own wisdom, by your own knowledge, the less you'll understand. And the more you trust God, the more you'll understand. We operate under a universal principle of grace. But grace is so incredibly difficult for us to understand. I know that I've told you this story before, um, but it's, it really is striking. There was a lady who was driving her car one day, and a group of teenagers were driving in front of her acting stupid. Uh, it's going to be hard for any of you to believe if you've been around teenagers. And they were goofing off. And they had a frozen turkey in their car. And driving down the highway, they threw the frozen turkey out the window. And it came, crushed the windshield, and they crushed the woman's face. Now this woman had to have major reconstructive surgery, extremely expensive, extremely painful. And I want you to imagine for just a second how you would feel if you were her. And you imagine the advice that she was getting from her friends. Here's how you can throw the book at them. Look at how much they made you suffer. This is what they deserve. But this woman was a Christian. 
And you know what happened when it came time for her to testify in court about what they had done? She testified to the judge, asking the judge to be lenient on them. Now, so the reason was that God had been lenient with her. Uh, what is grace? Grace is when I deserve something bad and I'm given something good in exchange. Grace is when I break into God's kingdom, I steal things that don't belong to me, I break the things that God has given me, I use the life that God gave me to rebel against God, and God's response is, okay, let me adopt you, let me make you my child. And I know, again, this is one, there's some stories that are just too good to not use over and over again, because I want you to memorize them, because I want you to be able to use them, okay? If I asked you, I'm going to explain to you justice, mercy, and grace. If, let's say, John Charles stole my car, okay, they caught him, and they brought him to me, and they said, he stole your car, would you like to press charges? If I said, yeah, I'd like to press charges, <laughs> that is justice, right? There wouldn't be anything wrong with that. Justice is when somebody gets what they deserve. If I said, no, I don't want to press charges, let him go. You have a hard time imagining that, aren't you? That's mercy. Mercy is when we don't get the punishment that we deserve. If I said, John, I hate that you were in this position, and I don't want you to feel like you ever have to steal again, just keep it on. What's that? That's grace. You say, what kind of a fool would ever do anything like that? You realize you sinned against God, you were a rebel and a traitor. And God, you're brought before God, and justice would be for God to cast you into hell forever, to punish you as a rebel, the second death. Mercy would be God saying, I'm just going to extinguish you from existence. But that's not what God says. He said, he came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him, but then gave he power to become the sons of God. God said, you were a rebel against me, you betrayed me, but I give to you the keys of the kingdom. That's grace. Now, how, when was the last time, this is a real question for you to think about, when was the last time you operated with grace in your life? When was the last time somebody deserved something bad, and I mean really deserved something bad, and everything in you cried out to go and give them what they deserved? And instead, you responded with grace. I think I told you about uh, my pastor friends, too, in Dallas. Uh, he's a youth pastor up there, uh, Jonathan. And uh, he is a Jonathan Smith. He's up actually in uh, Garland. And, uh, and he was up there, and I was talking to him, and they went and did an outreach in the city. And one of the things that they did that the, the, they did in this, it's called City Week. It's a mission trip. They take high schoolers and college kids on to go and uh, witness in the city. So they take four or 500 teenagers to a new church, you know, that may be running 15 people, and these four or 500 teenagers do witnessing door to door and community service projects and all kinds of stuff throughout the city to help uh, jumpstart the church that somebody's starting. One of the things that they did. I told this on a Sunday night, so I'm telling you now for everybody's benefit that wasn't here. 
the uh, one of the things they did was they took cookies into the lobby of the Planned Parenthood, and the lady running the desk started crying. And she said, this is the first time in my life that a Christian has ever done anything nice for me. Now, <coughs> I hope that that's not actually true. But do you ever wonder, if it was dependent on the amount of grace that you've shown in your life, how many people would have ever really experienced grace if it was up to you? That's pretty convicting. Jonathan told me how guilty he felt then when he went home and he talked to his 12 or 13-year-old daughter about what had happened, and she was angry at them for doing it. He said, you know, they killed babies. Why would you take them something nice? And he said, you know, that that was when he realized that he had been trying to teach her right and wrong and had done that very successfully, but had not taught her grace. And I don't know about you, but there's something in me that's kind of like that, too, that kind of prickles up. He says, well, how can you do something nice for somebody like that? But then I read in the Bible things like, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I read about where Jesus came to the thief on the cross, who we read was not only a thief, but a murderer. And Jesus turns to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Where the woman caught in adultery, who by the law of that day was ready to be executed. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Grace is not excusing what people do. You know, Jesus didn't say, you know, it's a good thing that you're going and committing adultery. They didn't go into Planned Parenthood and say, you know, here's $20 to help you kill some more babies. But they said, God loves you and loves you too much to leave you doing what you're doing. He loves you too much to leave you in the lifestyle that you're in. That's great. If somebody threw a frozen turkey through your windshield, do you think that you would respond by testifying for them? And of course, maybe a more uh, true to, a more common, a more familiar example, I guess, is uh, the shooting. Uh, Dylan Roof went in and shot the, the historic church. And the people that were members of that church had a prayer vigil for him that they forgave him. Here's a question then. If somebody came into our Sunday school class and killed all the people in here, the rest of us showed up, would we pray for that person? Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he sends rain on the just and the enemy. So, are you a person of grace? Here's what I want to get across to you, is that even though justice is the wisdom of the world, even though giving people what they deserve is the wisdom of the world, the fundamental principle of God's kingdom is grace. The fundamental principle of God's kingdom is that it's not about what you've done. It's not about what you deserve. It's about the infinite riches of the love of God. And is that the way you live your life? If you live your life that way, are you ever going to get caught up in these little, like, wars that happen inside of churches? You know, I really, really like uh, when the, you know, <laughs> I like Bloomberg, and I like when the kind of things that people fight about in churches. Well, I really like this person. You know, this person is doing this, and I don't like that, and I want this and that and the other. <laughs> and whose side are you on? 
If I live in a world of grace, if I say that grace is as real for me as the law of gravity, I will not be able to act like that. And that's when I will be wise. But you can't do it. Let's look here in verse 6 again. We speak wisdom among them that are perfect. He says, you can't handle it yet. You're little babies. You respond instinctively. You know, when I, I lay in a station down, the look of betrayal. You put her down somewhere. Yesterday, I got in a real mess. Uh, I was holding her, and Colleen has, in the bedroom, has put these little uh, toys on the end of the pool chain for the ceiling fan. There's a little wooden rabbit and a little wooden bear, okay, or a little ceramic bear. And she was letting, picking it up and letting her play with it. Well, that was fine. She'd play with it for a little bit and get bored. Until she discovered if she pulled on it hard, she could turn the light on and off. There was no getting bored after that. <laughs> she went to the doctor last week, and she's in the 90th percentile for weight and the 100th percentile for length. And it is kind of hard to hold this 22-pound baby up on your shoulder for a long period of time. She gets it, and she tugs on it. Tugs on it, tugs on it. And I think, finally, okay, she's got to be getting bored with this. I wish that I had regular incandescent bulbs in here so they burn out. These LEDs are going to last 30 years. I can't do this much anymore. And so I took her and I put her on the ground. And the look on her face I thought you loved me. And then the wailing and then the screaming. It's just, what's it like, Daddy? I know you say that you love me, but you just let me down, you know? It's the worst thing in the world. And there's this universal principle that when we are not ready for things, we're not capable of doing things by ourselves, and God makes us go the long way to develop things, when God does things we don't understand, we get kind of angry, don't we? start to fuss and you start to cry and you say, God, I know that you say you love me, but sometimes you let me down. You know, I can't believe you would treat me like this. We speak wisdom among the perfect. If you're ready for this, you can have it. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. You know, not the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of the powerful people in this world that's kind of fading away into nothing. But we speak the, the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because do you want to see where the wisdom of the world ends? You say, well, you know, God gave me common sense. I know that you've got to be stronger, and I know you've got to work hard, and I know that Grace sounds like a nice idea, but that's just not going to work in my life. That's not going to work in the real world. I can't go around forgiving and loving my enemies. That's just not going to work. So do you want to know where the wisdom of the world ends? It ends in crucifying Jesus. It can't end any other place. If your heart is on the wisdom of the world, the way that the world works on things, on this kind of functioning, then you are always going to end up angry with God. One of the greatest stories in the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son is the worst named story. Okay? It's 
given the name of the prodigal son, it might be 1100 by some artist who was painting it, and he titled his painting Return of the Prodigal. And it's really neat. You know, you've read the story, the uh, man the, young, the man has two sons, and his younger son comes to him and says, Father, I'd like my share of the inheritance. I don't want to wait for you to die. I'd like it now. I want you to imagine saying that to your father, okay? I don't want you to imagine me saying that to my father, okay? I'm uncomfortable with the saying. Okay? Go up to him and say, you know, I want my share of the inheritance now, Dad, let's get to it. I remember when I was like uh, nine, you know, saw something somewhere about trusts, and I was like, Dad, what about a trust? Could I have a trust? You know, that's what people get rich when their parents die, right? And he said, well, you can trust that when I die, you're going to get some money. And I said, <laughs> but if I had him and said, Dad, I'd like half of the stuff now. I'd like for you to sell everything, give me my half, and I'm going to take it on. The prodigal son does that. He comes to his father, and his father does. He actually got a third. The oldest son got two-thirds. Uh, the oldest son got a double share in the Bible. So if you had four sons, the oldest son would get two fifths and one fifth. But he gets his share of the inheritance. And he goes to a far country, and of course, like younger brothers are wont to do, he wastes it all. Hey, poof, gone. And the Bible says that he was, he wasted it on riotous living, party. Because prodigal means wasteful. And uh, later he says, this, his brother will say, you know, this, this son of yours who devoured your living with harlots, okay? He's blown it all. And so he comes, the younger son comes, and he's slopping the pigs. And the Bible says, he came to himself and said, "My, how many servants in my father's house have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger? I will go, I will arise and go and return to my father, and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your higher servants. Sitting there in the mud, starving to death, he says, I'm just going to go home, and I know I can't be my father's son anymore, but I'm just going to ask him to make me a slave, buy me as a servant in this house, where at least I'll have something to eat. So he comes home, and you know the Bible says that his father saw him while he was yet a long way off. And his father ran to him and took him in his arms and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and your sight, and I am not worthy to be called your son. But before he could say, make me as one of your hired servants, his father cut him off and told the servants, go kill the fatted ram. We're going to have steak tonight. Go bring a ring for his hand, a robe for him, shoes for his feet. Because my son, who was lost, is found again. He was dead, and now he's alive. And you say, well, that's wonderful. That's grace, isn't it? You know, you wonder how much, how many of you, I ask how many of you would have shown grace, how many of you would have received grace if you'd taken half of your family inheritance from God? You know, they, uh, they actually, when somebody did something like that, they threw a funeral for them. They said, you know, they're dead to us, and they had a funeral where the family mourned this person that could never come home. So not only was the father lost half of his wealth, but he is now ashamed to the community. How could you be so stupid as to take that son back? But I already told you, that's not what the story's about. The story's not about the younger son. The Bible says, while they're throwing this party, the older son heard it and sat outside the soul. The father came out to him and said, what are you doing? And he said, I've been here serving you all this time, and 
and this your son who's wasted all your living with harlots comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. I couldn't get the fatted calf to eat with my friends. Paul said, you're with me always. Everything that I have is yours. But your son, your brother was dead and now he's alive. The story of the prodigal son, the reason it ends like that is that it is not about the younger brother. It's about the older brother. It's about how sometimes when other people receive God's grace, there's something in you and there's something in me that bucks up and says, well, that's not fair. They're treated better than I am, Matt. Look at the way that they've messed up. They ought to be punished. We are, in terms of wisdom of the world, we are not rigged for grace. We're built for sin. We're built for self-righteousness. We're built for pride. And everybody here struggles with that. If you say you don't struggle with that, then you're a hypocrite and a liar too, in addition to all those other things that happen. You've got this conflict inside of you. And there's the world's way of doing things that says, you know what, you're right. I can't believe that he would do all those things for your brother after what your brother did. You ought to be the one getting the part. But I told you, the older brother was so angry. The older brother represents, in the story, of course, the Jews. Jesus was going out, and he was reaching the lost and the harlots. They said, what do you think you're doing that's so undignified? And Jesus was bringing them into the kingdom. And the other people, the people who were already faithful, got so angry. And what did they do? They killed Jesus. They crucified the Lord of glory. If your mind is set on the world's way of doing things, if your mind is set on the worldly wisdom of you get what you get, you know, this is justice, then ultimately you will end up so angry with God for operating in a different way that you will crucify the Lord of glory. You're not going to literally crucify Jesus. That's another interesting thing. You know, Satan puts it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. And you wonder, why does Satan cause Jesus to be crucified. You know, didn't he know what was coming? Didn't he know that Jesus being crucified was the way God was going to save the world? Funny thing about pride is that your brain does not work correctly when you're born pride. Because he couldn't understand the deep wisdom, or he wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. The prince of this world has always got kind of a double meaning in the Bible, referring to both the demons, the spiritual powers, and also piloting terrorists, people like that, and we don't preach that kind of wisdom because they can't understand it. If they knew it, they wouldn't have done what they've done. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. You've heard this verse quoted a lot, almost surely misquoted. I don't think I've ever heard anybody quote this verse correctly. People use it to say, well, you know, we don't know how wonderful heaven's going to be. It's going to be so great. The favorite funeral verse. The problem is that they don't read the next verse. It says in uh, verse 10, but God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. He says it was written in Isaiah, in Isaiah 64, 4, that eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard and nobody knows what God has prepared for the ones that love him or the ones that wait for him. But God's revealed them to us. Now who are those things for? Are they for the smart? Are they for the clever? Are they for the people who work hard or are they for the just? No, it says God has prepared these things for those that love him. 
You place your trust in God because wisdom things are for you. But when your heart is not fixed on God, some people love justice more than they love God. I think all of us are always torn by that idol. I like rules a lot. Really. A lot. And it's something I've always got to check within myself. I've always got to say, okay, is this just me wanting to have a black and white answer to everything? Or is this what the Bible really says? Because I always have this tendency to lean in to something clear, black and white, this and that. And unfortunately, you don't get that very much in the Bible. I say unfortunately. So we live not by the letter, but by the Spirit. You know, God, when we're children, we get clear rules like a schoolmaster, but with maturity, we don't. You always got this tearing. So how do we know that wisdom? We get it. God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. So when you became a Christian, if you are a Christian, you, when you trusted Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and lived inside your heart, came and dwelt in. And we know that becoming a Christian is not a gradual process, although there may be a process that leads up to it. Becoming a Christian is a moment. For 2 Corinthians says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's a moment where, like the prodigal son, you sit in the mud and the mire and say, I, you come to yourself, say, I've sinned against heaven and against God, and I am not worthy to be called his son. If when you got saved, or when you made a profession of faith, you thought that you deserved to be God's child, then you weren't really saved. I need to meddle with you on that. If you think that you deserve God's love, then you've missed what it takes to become a Christian. It takes two things to become a Christian. You have to repent and believe. You have to realize you deserve God's judgment. You have to realize that by justice, you'd be cast out. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am not worthy to be called your son. You have to be humble. But then it's faith and belief that God's going to take you anyway. So, when that happens, when you come to that moment, the Holy Spirit, God, puts his spirit inside of you as a down payment. You sinned against him, you betrayed him, you rebelled against him, and yet, he comes and he gives you himself. It says, for what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit which is in him? Even so, the things of God knows no man but the spirit of God. What can you know? <laughs> Who can really know you better than your own spirit? Who can really know you better than your heart? We have the Spirit of God. Let's go just a, a little quickly now. Verse 12. Now we've received, not the Spirit of the world. See that? We have received. Yeah, you don't see it, but you see it here in your Bible. We have received. That means we didn't go and get. Receive is a passive verb, isn't it? You see that? If I receive a gift, I get a gift. I receive when I receive a gift, that gift is not dependent on me. It's not dependent on what I do. It's something that was given to me. We have received already the Spirit. Not the Spirit of the world. Not the mindset of the world. Not the way the world works. But the Spirit which is of God. That we might know the things that are freely given to us in God. Which things also we speak. Not in the words which man's wisdom teaches which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Okay. 
But we receive the Spirit, not the Spirit of the world, but God's Spirit, that we can understand the things God gives to us freely. That means to understand the mature things of the Bible, to understand the wisdom, to know how to think the way that God thinks, you need the Holy Spirit. See, he says, we speak these things not in man's worldly wisdom, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, this is kind of a difficult verse, and uh, it's really hard to bring into English accurately. Not accurately, precisely, I guess is the right word. The word comparing is not exactly the same as our word comparing in English. Uh, and there's no word that's exactly like the Greek word. It means bringing together side by side. Okay? Now we use that to say to evaluate them differently. In Greek, it can mean that, or it can mean to fit them together like a puzzle, or it can mean to see if they match, or it can mean all these different things. So the context of what he's been saying. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual, literally spirituals. He says, we come and we bring spiritual things to spiritual people. You want to know why you don't understand the wisdom of God? You want to know why you read the Bible and don't understand it? You want to know why you don't make good decisions? Because spiritual things fit with spiritual people. If you're not a spiritual person, you're not going to understand the things of the Bible. You know, when we are not, we don't seem to speak the same language as somebody else. It doesn't matter how much we talk. We have to be in the same terms. When God comes and we read the Bible and we look at the things the Bible teaches, when we're not spiritual and we're carnal, or natural, as the next verse is going to put it, the spiritual things of God don't fit. So here's the problem. If you feel like, oh, you know, I go to Sunday school and I don't get anything out of it, I read my Bible, I don't understand, or whatever. The problem is the receiver. I, uh, I love what Adrian Rogers said. He says that people say, well, you know, preachers just don't preach like they used to. Adrian Rogers said, some of them do, you just don't hear like you used to. And that's true, isn't it? You don't hear like you used to. Because sin has got this dulling influence. Every time you ignore God, it gets harder to hear God the next time. Though. You get callous, you get hard. And then, you know, you haven't done anything for God for 20 years, and you sit down in church and you say, you know, I just don't feel like I used to. I'm just going to go ahead and go to There are some, and I'll admit this, this is absolutely true. There are some preachers that go to, the, you go to these different like, area pastors' conferences and stuff. They have like Bible conferences on Thursdays sometimes where, the, you know, pastors from the area will come and take turns preaching. And there are some of these guys that I know way too well to, to have a good time listening to them. And that's, and I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but I'm saying that the whole time I'm listening to them, I'm thinking about some of their weaknesses. And so I quit thinking about the word that they're saying. I quit thinking about the truth that they're preaching. I quit thinking about what I can learn from them 
and start thinking about all the things that I can't learn from them. And that's a that's a critical spirit. Okay, that's pride. That's something in me that says, no, you can't teach me about this because you've got all these faults and you've got all these flaws. But what if I say that it's not the words of wisdom that man teaches? What if I say it's not about what I know? What if I say it's not about what they know? It's the Holy Spirit coming and putting the spiritual things with the level of spirituality that I have to handle. When I get fleshly, and start thinking, oh, this person's this, and this person's that, and I don't like this person. Which happens. There was one uh, teacher at the seminary who was teaching church growth. And I'm telling you, I, I first thought when I saw the schedule, this had to be some kind of a joke. Like, if you were picking a pastor to be the least likely person to teach church growth, then this guy would be it. Like, it's got to be some kind of a mean prank, because all he's ever done is destroy churches. But you know, his faults and his flaws may not have made him or been the best person to teach the But that doesn't mean that he couldn't take the things from the Bible and you couldn't get them through a dirty pipe. I mean that. I'm saying that to say that we all struggle with that. We all get distracted by the messenger. We all get distracted by our own sin, by our own weakness, by our own fleshliness. <laughs> in a lot of different ways. We get out of the spirit and we get into the flesh. But you know, when I was looking at him, and I, I'm confessing <laughs> here, when I was looking at him and thinking, oh, there's nothing that he can teach on this. I was operating in the worldly wisdom. Right? Well, look, he hasn't had success in this, so he's not going to be able to do anything. That was not very gracious of me, was it? There was no grace in it. And so, in the, to the extent that I behave wrongly in my interactions with that person, and thought wrongly in my interactions with them, thought not spiritually, I actually made myself less able to receive the things he was able to teach. Because only the spiritual things fit with the spiritual people. Only the spiritual people fit with the spiritual things. Comparing, bringing together spiritual things and spirituals. I ought to say, too, of course, spiritual does not have a meaning. You know, when people say, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I mean, but I know there's a God, but I don't want to actually be responsible for anything. Really, it's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. God's some kind of a cop out. I like to be led by ideally. So I think a lot of people mean when they say they're spiritual. But what this means is the words the Holy Ghost teaches. Let's look at verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness. Someone who's natural, operating in the flesh, cannot receive the teaching of God. Natural is actually the word soulish. You know, you're operating in your own common sense, your own thing. That person can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. And, well, you know, I just want to be comfortable. It's, it's, sometimes people kind of look at this and say, you know, the animal man, the, the instinctive. The, I'm going to be comfortable, I'm going to be me. Cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. 
You know, if you're not a Christian, the idea of testifying for somebody who smashes your face with a frozen turkey is foolish. You say, why would you do that? The foolishness is him. But he cannot even know them. It's not even possible for him to know them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually understood. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. When you're spiritual, you can look and you can evaluate and you can understand every decision. And nobody can lord over you. You know, the Bible says, who are you to judge another man's servant to his own master? He stands or he falls, yet God's able to make it stand. See, the spiritual person understands everything and is not subjected to anyone else's judgment. Because they're judged constantly by the Holy Spirit. There's one thing that I really struggle with as a pastor, and that's patience. Okay. I'm not hardwired to be a patient person. We, uh, my mom's family in Pennsylvania will all come into a room and they will have five different conversations with four people in the room. They all talk at the same time. And I just cannot handle it. It's like, I need to go outside. But Justin, it's snowing. No, I just need to go outside. <laughs> <laughs> They all talk over each other, and they all talk at the same time and everything else. And um, I, if I'm talking to somebody, I just basically they interrupt me. And they say, well, what were you going to say? Never mind. My dad talked about it. I'll call him out. He obviously didn't want to hear it anyway. Get impatient. Get impatient, not gracious. Right? That's, that's our sin nature. That's hardwired in it. But with the Holy Spirit inside of me, I know that God ends up dealing with me about those things, right? I have to go back and apologize and try to make things right. The Holy Spirit deals with me. I have a hard time being patient with people. Here's my, my advice is that I expect way, I expect a lot out of people. I expect people to perform. <laughs> I expect people to really work hard and get to it. And I get really frustrated when people aren't here, or when people aren't doing what they're supposed to do, when people aren't whatever. And then I've got to say, you know what? In the big picture, how long does God have to work on somebody to get them to what they need to be? Their whole life, forever. So maybe I need to be a little bit more patient. And I read the Bible, and I read Jesus dealing with the disciples, and the, at the end of his ministry, you, know, you have things like Thomas saying, show, Philip saying, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you don't know that whoever's seen me has seen the Father? The week that Jesus died, his disciples were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who was going to sit on the throne. And Jesus had been working with them for three and a half years every day, a group of 12. we got to step back and say, we've got to be patient with each other, don't we? I don't have to be, you don't have to be where I expect you to be. I don't have to be where you expect me to be. You know each other. don't have to be where you expect each other to be. What does it take? It takes saying, okay, the spirit judges on the inside. Spiritual people, First Corinthians says if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Spiritual people live with the spirit. The spirit is constantly conforming you from the inside out. So when it says spiritual things with spiritual people, you want to learn how to be wise. 
I know you want to learn how to be wise. I know you're tired of making bad decisions. I know you're one tired of regretting things that you do. It's very simple, but the problem is it does not happen all at once. The way to learn to follow God, the way to be wise, is to obey the things you already understand. And when you obey the things you already understand, you will be a slightly more spiritual person. You'll walk slightly more in the spirit. And as you walk slightly more in the spirit, you'll understand a little more. And then you obey that. And then you'll obey that, and you'll walk a little more in the spirit. And you'll obey the next thing. And it's like sandpaper. You start out with a rough grid of sandpaper, and you say, this will get me started. And then you start to notice some finer imperfections that you missed before, and you take that out. You take that out, and you keep working down. If you say, I just don't understand the Bible, here's my question. When, what, what is there in the Bible already that you know you should be doing? Something you should be doing, something you shouldn't be doing, that you're not. See, I just feel so far from God. Okay, what is there that you already know, that you're already wise enough to know, that you're not obeying? It will be really hard to obey. Well, that's the point, isn't it? As long as you're walking in nature, it's always going to be hard to obey. But when you say, okay, I'm going to follow what I understand, and then God's going to give me the grace to understand a little bit more, comparing spiritual things to spiritual over and over and on and on and on. Until finally, look at this, he is spiritual, judges in all things, and he himself is judge of no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? That's also from Isaiah. And in the Hebrew, where that's quoted from, the answer is an implied no. It says, no one knows the mind of God to tell God what to do, do they? But then he says, but we have the mind of Christ. No one understands everything God understands, but do you know God's mind is inside of you because God's spirit is inside of you. You can think the way God thinks when you rely on the spirit. See, I'm not going to walk in my impulses. I'm not going to walk in my temper. I'm not going to walk in my desires, I'm not going to walk in my comfort, I'm not going to walk in my pride, I'm going to walk a little bit more in the spirit every day. Every day, I'm going to take my mind, and I'm going to dive it deeper into his mind. I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to see the things that I think wrongfully, and I'm going to correct them. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to lay out the things that I think, and I'm going to give them to God. And I'm going to obey the things that I already know. And every day, I'm going to get a little wiser. And every day, my heart's going to get a little stronger. And every day, my mindset, my worldview is going to get a little clearer until finally, you can be wise. And you can make good decisions. So, this is the big takeaway. The reason that you make bad decisions now on big things is because you choose to make bad decisions on small things. The reason that you operate in a fleshly level, you sin on impulse, is because in small things you make the decision to sin. You make the decision not to make God the priority in your life. And every time you do that, your spiritual muscles pass. It's been uh, going, you know, Sister Mary Watkins in the hospital having her, she had her knee replaced or her single, sorry, going through rehab. Well, they replaced that knee. They cut through all that bone and all that muscle and everything else. And every day, she's got to stretch it and bend it and stretch it and bend it. And it hurts. But if she doesn't do that, what's going to happen? It's not going to walk. You, spiritually, have sinned. 
There are things that you know you should do that you're not doing, things you know you shouldn't do that you are doing. And you've decided, nope, I don't care. I'm going to keep my legs stiff. I'm going to do this my way, and everything's going to work out. And then when everything doesn't work out, you're surprised. And you think, okay, well, now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get in line. If you had your knee replaced and you kept it straight for three weeks and then said, you know, this was a bad idea. I'm going to start walking now. You'd be in for a lot of pain. You'd be in for a lot of suffering. Because your muscles would all be dead. Your scar tissue would all walk you over. And that's what some of your hearts are like. <coughs> but the wisdom of God is better. The wisdom of God is grace. The wisdom of God is that even though you deserve never to walk again, that although it's going to hurt, God says, I'm going to walk with you through it. The wisdom of the cross comes in on both sides. He said, the people of the world didn't understand it. Because if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But what did we read last week? We read that the wisdom of Jesus, the wisdom of God is revealed in the cross. That self-sacrifice and laying down your life. So you are going to be in one side of this or the other. You are either going to be on the side of the world that says we're going to have justice. We're going to do things our way. Don't you tell me anything different. Crucify him. Crucify him. Or you're going to be on the side of God that says he died for me. He gave his life for me. Jesus knew the only way to conquer was to be conquered. The only way to conquer death was to die. And I, too, am going to lay myself down. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ is with me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life. My question then for you today, Grace, which side are you on? Are you on the cross or are you in the crowd? Is your life and your preferences and your desires, are those things that you lay down? Or are you in rebellion against God and wondering why things are not working? Wondering why things are not going your way? You've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. You can do that today. You can say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've been a rebel. And now I've come to myself and I've realized all I can depend on is your grace. I want to turn to you and be saved. You're a Christian and your heart has gotten hard and atrophied, you can come and you can wash it with your tears today and say, Lord, I want to be right. I want to think right. I want to have the mind of Christ. Wherever you are, you need to make a decision to walk in wisdom, to walk in God's way. You know, no one knows everything that God knows. No one can tell you what to do by, the, by perfect knowledge of the future, except we have the mind of Christ. And where God leads you, leads you, you're never alone. We're going to stand, we're going to have our musicians come forward, and we're going to have a I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me as we pray, and then just sing softly and tenderly together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your mind. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you are with us wherever we go, whatever we do. I just ask, Father, that if there's anyone here who doesn't have your spirit, Lord, who doesn't understand the things of the Bible, Lord, that they would trust you so that they can those that are saved, Lord, that don't understand because they're walking in the flesh,